is Joe Bakmotsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. You know, I believe that life will never be the same after cancer. And sometimes it's hard to admit that, or at least for me. And it's tough to open up about it with someone you love and someone that really cares about you, because there's a lot on the line there. And that's why we need to talk about sex and sexuality and intimacy and how it works through cancer and beyond. And that's why today you're gonna hear from Sage, who has such an eloquent and and down-to-earth way of working through these topics that are really hard to, to bring up and to talk about. Like, I genuinely believe that thanks to Sage, when it comes to sexuality and intimacy through cancer, you are getting the best advice on the planet. So, let's get into it. Sage, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for your time. Really Absolutely. Cool. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Cool. Sage, so I really I think I really want to start with some definitions about, you know, talking about sexuality and intimacy. Are they the same thing? So sexuality and intimacy are not the same thing. Um, they are two different things, although they might come together in a sexual and intimate relationship. But intimacy is really a human need. It's about connectivity and desire to be in community or connectedness with someone to feel safe and trusted in a relationship with someone. And we might be intimate with our best friends. We might be intimate with our partner, our family, people from our faith communities. But intimacy, again, is about that connectivity and connection. Where sexuality is really how we define ourselves and parts of ourselves as humans. So yes, it might have to do with sexual activity, but really it is kind of up here in our brain. How do we define ourselves? What, what, what does sexuality look like? And that might be, again, sexual activity, including intercourse, but it might be touching hands, expressing sexual expression. And it can also be strongly influenced by our spiritual backgrounds, our cultural backgrounds, and guide us to what we feel comfortable with or not comfortable with. So it might be in some cultures or faith practices, you know, we keep our bodies very hidden or covered because that's sacred. And that expressing sexual expression would only be within, you know, the sanctity of uh, a marriage relationship that the body or the sexual acts would only be seen by that person and others. Sexuality is more freer that they may feel very comfortable um, expressing their sexuality more outwardly. Um, and neither, again, right nor wrong. It's all very individual. And so sexuality, again, is just really an individual expression. Yeah, Sage, that was beautifully put. And, and it's such a personal and, and, like you say, a sacred thing that it, it's not only critical to maybe relationship if you're in that, but to also how you see yourself. And I think that cancer can obscure that so that not only, you know, it's difficult for you to deal with it, but it's also difficult to acknowledge it as a problem for yourself. Like, what's your perspective? On that. Yeah. And I think sometimes that also, you know, I would say in America that depending on where you live in America, the way sexuality is expressed is probably different and probably in other um, countries as well, um, as well as the media, right? The media, at least in America, 
over-sexualizes everything. So things that are sexualized would be things like looking at the breasts or the butt or like who has the most rock solid body gets over-sexualized. And so when that's considered sexy or sexual, my goodness, that not only sets up 90% of us for failure, but then you add a cancer diagnosis and chemotherapy and all the things that change our body image. If sexuality is defined by image, it has such a profound impact when you get a cancer diagnosis because of, for some women, um, their femininity is attached to their breasts or their hair. Um, And same with men. Maybe it's attached to their hair or to their physique. And when the steroids are added, they gain 30 pounds, you know, in, in two months. And that can have a tremendous toll on how they view themselves on top of the fact that um, not just the body image changes that occur, but um, the sexual function issues that occur related to the treatments itself. So for young women that are thrown into medically induced menopause, those sexual side effects can be tremendous and take a huge toll on the way they view their body as well as the way they feel about their body. And, and same with men as well, that they might notice that they're having a harder time um, achieving or maintaining an erection or that their libidos change. They're not as interested in being sexual. And maybe that's because of the treatment itself. Maybe it's because of the side effects like fatigue. When you're really tired, um, it's no longer an excuse. I'm tired or I'm too tired. It's an actual thing. (laughs) So um, being tired can influence um, a person's, again, sexual connection with themselves or with a partner or partners. And I think, you know, when cancer throws in that kink, isn't just, again, the body image piece. Sometimes we don't always think about all those other side effects like dry mouth, fatigue, neuropathy, hair loss, weight gain, weight loss, the changes in body related to scars or port scars, um, uh, feeding tubes, colostomy bags, right? There's so many things that physically affect the body that then can also psychologically affect the body when we start seeing our bodies as as not whole, those negative messages. That certainly then can influence both sexual function as well as our sexuality connected to, you know, how I view myself as man or woman. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. So like if you're diagnosed with cancer and you're worried about how that's going to affect your sex life, maybe you're just beginning treatment, who do you talk to about it? Do you talk to your oncologist or your nurse? And and what sort of questions should you ask? Yeah, good question. So it's a, it's a hard question to answer directly. So follow me through my indirect way. I think, you know, where you start is with someone who you trust on the medical team. That might be a, a nursing assistant. It might be a social worker. It might be the nurse or the physician assistant. It might be the physician. So I say, Start with the person you trust the most and let that person guide you to the next right person if they're not the right person. So I would start by just raising, just like we do when they say, how are you feeling, right? If they're not asking you questions about your sexual health or if they're not asking you questions about your relationships, then it probably is on you to bring it up. And so when they do their typical check-in of how are you feeling, you know, have you noticed any new side effects, that's kind of your opening in that with that question to say, actually, I've had some concerns. I've noticed, for example, my libido's changed, or I heard, I listened to this podcast, and this woman said that my sexual function might be impacted. What can I expect? You can also ask simple questions of, you know, I, I understand that my sexual function might be challenged or changed. 
What are some things I can do about that? Now, what I want to prepare your listeners for is it's not uncommon for a healthcare professional to not have the answers. And that's not because they don't care. It's because we haven't done a good job educating our healthcare professionals to be able to thoroughly address these questions. So they may say, I don't know. It would be less likely for someone to be more dismissive, like it doesn't matter. That used to be language I would hear more often of, you know, just focus on now. You don't have to worry. It'll come back later. And if your provider says that to you, I would suggest you ask for a different provider to talk to because not only do you need to feel valid and valued that you're relationships and your sexual body is important, but the more proactive you are, the better outcomes you're going to have. So just like when we say go exercise, you know, during treatment to keep your body strong, the same thing goes for your sexual health. The more proactive you can be on keeping your sexual body as sound and strong as possible, the better your outcome is going to be when you complete treatment or if you have advanced disease, you know, the, the more you're going to be able to navigate some of those ongoing and continuous changes. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Sage. And I know you touched on trust and it's so important, not only with your medical team, but obviously with, you know, maybe your partner. And it's it's so crucial talking to each other. So how do you bring it up with your partner? How do you talk about it? So if you're in a current relationship, different than if you are going to be in a relationship after your diagnosis, if you're in a current relationship, It depends on how you two communicate to begin with, right? Cancer doesn't often strengthen relationships. Sometimes there can be a little bit of honeymoon period and people rally, but oftentimes, you know, how you communicated before cancer is how you're going to be communicating during cancer. So it does provide you an opportunity to think differently about how you want to communicate. So if you are more of the type that might communicate for example, via text or email or writing notes to each other or bookmarking a page, say, hey, when your spare time, can you read this? Then I would say, at this moment, continue using that style. So you could say, for example, in an email, you know, I noticed that my body's changing and I'm feeling a little insecure about it. I want you to know that I still find you attractive, but my desires changed and I would love to have a conversation with you about it, right? So you can find maybe a little bit more of an easy opening to begin the conversation via email and then schedule the time to sit down and talk about it. Because if you don't schedule the time, one, it's not going to happen. And two, having that sacred time carved out where you know that that conversation is not going to be interrupted is really important. So if you have kids, it needs to be after they're in bed um, or go out on a date and have the conversation. And then one of the key things I say to people is use a fact, a belief, a feeling, and, and then give them an option to change. So For example, I'll use a young woman with breast cancer example. So ever since my diagnosis, you stopped touching me. I believe it's because you find me unattractive and it makes me feel sad that cancer has changed this part of our relationship. So oftentimes in couples, we might like drop those bombs on each other. Like you don't touch me anymore. It's because you don't think I'm attractive and now cancer screwed everything up. But if we can do a better job at saying what we need from our partner, um, then they have the ability to respond to that information. So the next thing I would say is then say, I need you when I come in the door to come and embrace me, give me a kiss or initiate um, sexual affection or initiate kissing or holding me. And that will help me feel wanted and desired. You can also say things like, you know, I learned today that my cancer treatments is going to affect my interest in sex. 
that doesn't mean I don't find you attractive. I am still very interested in you and I don't want that to change, but I'm going to need you to be more proactive on initiating because my body's not going to initiate it for us anymore. So creating that open dialogue is important. And I think, you know, again, all of it has to do with how we communicate that if there is loving intention behind it, if there is the intention of wanting to have a dialogue and be honest, then it gives our partners the ability to respond and have their own feelings. And we certainly can flip it back on them and say, how has cancer made you feel? Right? Because maybe their world's been turned upside down too, and our bodies have been changed. And so that changes the way they interact with our bodies. So again, thinking about how we can use a fact, a belief, a feeling, and then an action can help propel better conversations. If you're dating and you're trying to figure out how the heck you talk about this, I would say, you know, first trust is essential. This is not, there are certain people who wear cancer shirts, you know, on their first date and that's because they're advocates and they, that's all over their cars, right? It's on their websites and their Facebook pages. But the majority of people have cancer more as a back seat, not their front seat. And so in those circumstances, I would say, you know, before you disclose and talk about some of the changes that you just let them get to know you, let them get to know who you are, because who you are is not your cancer. That's certainly part of your story, just like your job, or your school or your family. And so incorporating that as part of your story, once you've had a few dates to establish that you actually like this person and are beginning to have trust would be important. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and I love your fact, belief, feeling, action framework because it kind of keeps you grounded and keeps you in check because you, your emotions are kind of running wild and, and you know, you're not going off track. Yeah, and, and really that fact, belief, feeling, action can be used in any kind of communication. We can use it with our doctors. We can use it with our friends. When we're feeling like they're not being the support we need, we can use it um, in other types of conversations with our partner or partners. So it's a good framework. Yeah. What about like talking about support? What if you're not receiving the support you want from people in your life? Maybe your, your, your friends or family. What's your advice on that front? Yeah. So similar framework, fact, belief, feeling, and action. But um, you know, I think one of the things we need to remember about both our partners and our family members and our friends is unless they've had their own personal experience of cancer, and even then their own personal experience is different than you know your unique experience, oftentimes people's lack of support is mostly done out of ignorance, not to try to be hurtful or hide. You know, if you notice that your friends are distancing, it may be that they just don't know how to talk to you about it, or they don't know how to bring it up, or they're scared they're going to make you feel uncomfortable. And so initiating that conversation could be as easy as, you know, ever since my cancer diagnosis, I noticed that you don't call as often. I miss hearing from you. We don't have to talk about my cancer. I'd just love to hear from you and talk about, you know, how your kids are, how your job is and initiate them to, to engage. You can also say, you know, if, if you don't know what to ask me, I can guide you on that. Or if talking about cancer makes you uncomfortable, we can talk about other stuff. Most of the time they'll say like, I just didn't know what to say and I don't want to make you feel bad. And I don't want to complain about my stuff because you have so much more going on. You know, and again, just normalizing like, yes, I have cancer going on, but I'm still human and I have a life and other things. And I'm understanding <laughs> that you have a life too. So giving that, again, that kind of ability to share is important by giving them permission. Oftentimes with our partners or our friends, it just starts with giving them permission to not know what to say and that that's okay. And if you hear them saying things that are unhelpful, which unfortunately happens a lot, like everything happens for a reason or God has a plan or... <laughs> 
you know, you're so strong. You know, if anyone can do it, you can. It's okay also to say, I know that's coming from a place of love, but that's not helpful to me. What I need from you is just for you to listen. And, you know, if, if for example, their spiritual life is important, certainly pray for you, but let's not bring God into the conversation with cancer, right? You can set some boundaries or if that's helpful to you, ask for more, right? That's everybody. You need to know what helps you and, and what doesn't. Yeah, that's fantastic, Sage. So I know you mentioned that, you know, if you uh, perhaps after treatment, you're kind of looking to meet someone new. How do you talk about it, you know, when you're just starting dating, perhaps? So I think, you know, when you're starting to date, and especially here, at least for, you know, again, I think it depends on the generation in which you're diagnosed, right? Because there are 65-year-olds who are dating, and they may or may not be using the apps. I think if you're 65 and dating, there is an expectation that you've lived a life that probably has had some traumas in it, like a cancer diagnosis. And so dating and disclosing that in your 60s is going to be very different than dating and disclosing that in your 20s and 30s. And so again, I think, you know, when you look at how do you begin to date again or come out after your cancer diagnosis? Certainly, you can try to meet people. Like, if you really want to meet another survivor, go to some support groups of people your own ages, right? Connect on different social media sites. You can connect to people on like Stupid Cancer or other young adult focused cancer websites. But really, I would say if you're just looking to date again, I would not say bring cancer into your dating profile because you are not your cancer. And it's really important. Unless you are actively in treatment and it is hard to hide the appearance issues related to the cancer diagnosis, then probably you're going to need to put somewhere in your profile or in your description, you know, currently kicking cancer's ass or something, right? That it's got to have something that shows your strength. And I, again, I think that's what you need to be really comfortable with. So I always tell people, get really comfortable with your story first. Go and practice disclosing to your best friend or to your sister or brother who can say, oh my gosh, that was horrible. Do it over again. <laughs> um, so you can feel confident because the more confident you are in your disclosure, the more confident you are in your story about your diagnosis. Because most likely when you're on that date, Nowadays, enough people have had cancer to know that there are going to be some long-term effects of that, right? Because we're starting to see survivorship so many more years later. So they might say, wow, that's amazing. How does that impact your life now? And that might be the time where you say, some, you know, I, I don't really know. I'm still kind of figuring that out. I really haven't figured out my body yet, but I'm working on it. Or, you know, fertility might be an issue, but we're not sure yet. That would be your opportunity to disclose some of the things that you might need to disclose at some point. So being confident, like, um, yes, I had cancer. I was treated three years ago. I have clean scans. I see my doctor every, you know, every six months or every year. I feel great. I'm back running. Whatever that might be where you flip it to the things you are now is going to be important. Again, if you're in treatment, flip it to the things that you're doing really well and make sure that that person feels relaxed because if you're insecure about it, they're going to think either you're hiding something or that you're not confident that you're doing well. Yeah, I love this advice. So you're kind of keeping it honest, but at the same time, it's not front and center. Yeah. And, and again, it, you need to adapt to your own personality. I do have, I joke about the people wearing cancer sucks shirts on dates, but I do have some of my young adults who do. Like that's on their <laughs> Facebook page, right? They slap those bumper stickers on people's cars as they leave their date. 
So, you know, use your own unique style, but it would be important to think about the other, the other piece of this is social media has really changed anonymity. And so if you disclose on Facebook or on Twitter or on any other social media site that you have a cancer diagnosis, even if it's just a picture of you bald, you need to be prepared to speak to that because nowadays people will, you know, Facebook stalk you four days before you see them on a date. So be (laughs) mindful that, you know, what you put out there is going to come back. So if you don't want cancer to be part of your profile, right? Not even your written profile, but your, your internet world profile, you should be really thoughtful about what it is you're putting out there in the social media world because they will find it. Yes, exactly. That is so true, Sage. And talking about survivorship, like, you know, there is, this I guess this expectation that you're just going to bounce back to life but that's not always the case is it no not at all I haven't yet met somebody that bounces back to life after their (laughs) I think the challenge you know with with treatments is we do now we do a really good job at treating the cancer and making sure that we give you the highest survival rate possible but that means we're treating it with some pretty heavy duty stuff that have ongoing side effects. And so, you know, as you get to the finish, if you're taking chemotherapy, the finish of chemotherapy, you may be rejoicing that you're done, but that chemical stuff still has to get all the way out of your body. And then there's all those other secondary effects or late effects. You know, for some people, it has cardiovascular issues that they have to be able to be, they're followed by that might impact again, their ability to get back to running like they used to. And more importantly, though, you know, many people are okay with kind of putting the sexual components, like the actual act of sex on hold during treatment. But there is this anticipation of, okay, once treatment's done, we're going to get back to normal and we're going to start having sex again, or I'm going to have sex with myself or whatever my normal patterns were before. And they suddenly become very keenly aware that their body is not where their brain is, that their brain may want to be, you know, ready and roaring, but their body is fatigued and doesn't feel good and may have some dryness or, you know, some other sexual complications that take time to heal. And sometimes it's time and sometimes it's using techniques to help heal it that um, you're going to have to do for life. So I think the emotional component of that, that comes up for a lot of survivors, the awareness of like, pull up your bootstraps and get through the treatment. And then the reality that, oh my gosh, what just happened hits you. And after you're done pulling up your bootstraps and you're ready to go back into life, your body isn't ready yet. And so that grief of how cancer didn't just take those nine months of your life, now it's taking another year for that healing. And so oftentimes I'll tell people, you know, when you hear that you're going to be done with treatment, celebrate that, but be gracious with yourself for the next year. It really takes about a year from the time treatment ends until a year at that point where you start to feel like, huh, I'm some semblance of myself again. (laughs) Um, And that semblance of yourself also may look different because the other part of survivorship is maybe your priorities or values have shifted a little bit. Even like if you were single, maybe the person you're attracted to after your cancer diagnosis is different than the kind of person you might've been attracted to prior, just based on your experiences and exposure. And that's okay too. So I think being gracious with yourself and, and giving space 
for both the grief, but also for the redefining of, of today, I might have a lot of energy. And so I'm going to do what I can. And tomorrow I may be totally gonked out and that's okay. Yeah, that's such a fantastic advice, Sage, because I think sometimes we have such high expectations of ourselves. I speak to a lot of folks who kind of, yeah, you know, they talk about um, you, you finish treatment and then you, know, you expect to bounce back to life and do the things you've always done. But that really doesn't how it work out. And you have to redefine how you see yourself, how you see your everyday reality and, and how you see your future. Yeah. And if you're in a partnership, it oftentimes is the mistake of the partner, not, not ill-intended, just ill-informed, that when treatment is done within a month, you're going to be back to normal and able to take on, you know, taking care of the kids and back to doing laundry and back to running around and all of those things. And that's, that's just not possible. So, you know, including your partner in some of those conversations with the doctor about what to expect in healing would probably be important too, because that's an opportunity for them to ask questions like, well, how long until, you know, when will she be back or when will he be back? Um, And it also gives you a platform to say, you know, how long until I'll have energy again so that you can ask the questions that maybe he or she needs to hear to better be equipped for expectations that are realistic. Yeah, absolutely. And Sage, you have so many fantastic uh, support groups at your center. So what are some of those things that you see that uh, are working, that are helping people connect, help people during treatment uh, and beyond? Yeah, so I think some of the things that we focus on, we have disease-specific support groups. So you can go to a, a support group that kind of crosses all ages and unites you from a diagnosis. So all colon cancer um, survivors could come together. And sometimes that's stage one to stage four. But the unity and connectivity that happens because there's shared experiences and the impact of the diagnosis is so similar that there's great strength in that community. And certainly, you know, support groups are not for everyone. We know they can improve the quality of life of people for people who tend to be more people people and want to connect to people. For people who rejuvenate more internally, that may not be a place for you. And so, you know, maybe you want to think about taking a mindfulness class or taking an exercise class with survivors that doesn't necessarily require you to share feelings, but still creates that sense of connectivity and community. So at our center, we really look at mind, body, spirit options, both from a support group around diseases, but then also mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques, education series on you know managing some of the side effects of treatment so that, again, you might go to a session on chemo brain and being around other people, hearing their stories, gosh, you walk away thinking, oh, I'm not as bad as I thought I was, or oh, I'm not going crazy. I actually, that's actually a real thing. <laughs> um, that's the importance of connecting to other people is the validity that one feels when you hear that you're not alone in that, that you're not the only one that can't remember where you put your keys, or you know, you're not the only one that is struggling with figuring out how to feel good in your body again. There is a great sense of relief experienced when that can be done. Again, whether that's a support group or just joining another thing. So the other benefits we've seen, things like our fitness classes, is not just about the physical um, improvement and awareness of their own bodies, but also, again, that encouragement, that buddy system that happens around, hey, I didn't see you at yoga on Monday. What happened? Right? And that shared experience of encouraging one another to take good care of their bodies while they're in treatment, as well as when they're after treatment, as well as that accountability around, um, are you okay? Is there anything you need that can create some of that connection between people? 
And certainly there are people who live in remote areas that can't get to a face-to-face group or can't get to a class. So I would encourage, you know, the listeners that are in more remote areas to find online connections. The only thing I say about online connections, if you're going to find a support group, I would really advocate, and I am biased just because I'm a clinician, that you find a group that is facilitated by a clinician. So moderated by a professional that has a license, because oftentimes what can happen, especially on the web, you know, the linings of the interweb lead to all kinds of openness. And some people will get on there just to complain or share really scary stories. And if there isn't somebody who knows how to redirect that conversation and make sure that everybody feels included in the conversation, it can be rather unhelpful over helpful. And then, you know, finding things, even for me, I'm a big fitness guru. So I um, think even just as sexual bodies, movement is critical for our bodies. So um, using online apps that keep you moving, and it doesn't have to be going to the gym, it can be literally tracking your steps and having a, a realistic goal for yourself that day that if you're feeling more depressed, or if you're feeling more fatigued, Set a goal of a thousand steps. Can you get that done? And have somebody maybe um, in your family or somebody in your treatment area that can be that accountability buddy that can send you a text and just encourage you to to get up and walk. Because that also has a huge impact on the way you think about yourself and the way you feel about yourself. Yeah, that's fantastic, Sage. So what are some of the best resources online, in your opinion, that talk about sexuality and intimacy around cancer? I wish there were more. Um, so there aren't a lot of online resources. I mean, I would encourage you to Google. There's probably a lot that you could find connected to specific diseases. So like living at beyond breast cancer and young survival coalition, those are two breast cancer organizations that have great information on their websites. Um, the national cancer Institute, um, in the States has a great section on sexuality and cancer, both for professionals like myself to read up, like, what do I need to know about side effects, but also for patients and families. And so that's an easy place to start as well. There is a website, cancer-network.org, and that's for the LGBT community. Um, And I think that's a great online resource. Stupid Cancer has some information on their website. And then now ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, partnered with the Canadian ASCO. And together we created um, some guidelines on addressing and assessing sexual health in cancer. And although that is written for professionals, right, we wrote it to put in kind of pocketbooks of physicians and nurses. What is valuable about that is if you're a patient, you can go on and you'll at least get some of the information that is normalizing like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that my libido was going to be affected or I didn't know I was going to have vaginal dryness, that it will give you some of the information that you might need. And then a nurse named Ann Katz is also, she's done some great books, both for men and women, one called Woman, Cancer Sex, the other one, Man, Cancer Sex, are also some great books. I also think, you know, again, depending on um, your own experiences coming into cancer, and I should have said this earlier, you know, if you have any kind of sexual trauma in your past, I think it's really important to honor that. And if you can tell someone, tell someone, because unintentionally as healthcare providers, 
we don't know that history unless you share it. And so we may touch you in ways that we view as clinical, but may actually be emotionally harming you. And so if there is any kind of sexual trauma in your life, um, and that could be from unwanted touch to molestation to a rape, it's really important for us as providers to know that so we can do a better job taking care of you through your experience. And then the other piece I would say is, depending on your faith background, your spiritual practices, that your spiritual leaders might be good resources for you on navigating, you know, how do I manage this? What what about my changing body can I do within the context of my faith practice? Because, for example, as a certified sex therapist, I prescribe masturbation not for the goal of orgasm, but for rehabilitation. And if masturbation is not with in the religious or cultural confines of your practice, I personally, as a sex therapist, would work with your faith leader to talk about what would work in order to help preserve this so that when they are in a, in a sexual relationship, they can go into that fully healthy and knowing their body. And so again, I think some of that may be online, but a lot of that is just talking and sharing. The other piece I would say for any of the women listening pelvic floor therapists and men too, if you have incontinence issues related to your treatment for prostate cancer or um, bladder cancer or colon cancer, pelvic floor therapists are physical therapists that specialize in just the pelvic floor area. And they do amazing work and are tremendous resources to just strengthen that pelvic floor muscle that's often attributed to sexual pain or discomfort, as well as incontinence. Well, thank you so much, Sage, and thanks so much for all your time and your advice, and thank you for what you do. This is crucial. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I look forward to being back again if other questions come up. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. You're welcome. Take care. Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and thanks so much for listening. Listen, I just want to take a moment to really thank you for your time, because I know that it's precious, but also I want to congratulate you. I really want to congratulate you on listening to this podcast, because as we both know, cancer is incredibly hard to deal with, and you don't want to go it alone. And you want all the support and all the advice that you can get to, to stay on top of it, to stay on top of your worries during cancer. So I, I want to tell you about the tools that I have available on my website on simplifycancer.com that can really help you. So all of these tools are available under the tools menu on simplifycancer.com. So tool number one, that's the first visit oncologist checklist. So if the word oncologist bothers you, like I, I know it really freaked me out. If you are worried about your first appointment, as, as again, as we all are, then this can really help you with some key questions that you want to ask. The key thing, of course, is having a list like this means that you won't forget something important, which is easy enough to do when, when you've got a million things going through your head. Plus, it's a handy PDF, so it's easy to print and write down all the answers so you don't forget. So then there is the outcome map. Like This is a really simple but really powerful tool that I have developed to help you deal with worries about something specific, something that's bothering you right now. So maybe you're waiting for your test results and your mind's off running in a million different directions. Or maybe you've got an ache or pain and you don't know what it is. Like, is it cancer? Is that a side effect from treatment? Or maybe is that something else altogether? So it will kind of help you to put it all together so you can, you can get a bird's eye view and decide how to best deal with it. 
Number three is mastering your emotions during cancer. Now, this is a walk through all the stages that you go through as a patient and as a caregiver through anger and through guilt and fear and how you can address your needs, your emotional needs on every level during cancer. Like it came about after many discussions that I had with my friend and my colleague. Her name is Jill. Her husband had prostate cancer. So, uh, so he, she has this kind of caregiver's perspective. And we both like talked about how there are so many times, um, when you go through cancer, when you kind of just feel alone and you're struggling, you're on this roller coaster of emotions and it's kind of full on and it's hard to deal with. So there, there's an audio version that comes along with it. And there's a link to download the MP3 if that's what you want, or you can just listen to it online and, you know, and just uh, listen along with the PDF. So another one is testicular cancer support kit. This has a one page summary of what the testicular cancer journey looks like that you can check out for yourself or share with your family or friends. Like it's got a helicopter view of all the symptoms and treatments and who's involved and what happens when. And it's really great one kind of page view of like what happens during testicular cancer. Plus, the kit also includes like ready-to-go email templates for your family, friends, and your workmates. So you can kind of share what's what's happened. Maybe you want to break the news on cancer and you can, don't want to think about and wreck your brain on what to write. So you can just copy and paste. You can tweak it a little bit so to suit your personality and you're good to go. And I've also done the same thing for prostate cancer. So check out the prostate cancer support kit. Again, it's showing all the treatment options and stages on one page. So you can walk someone through it, like someone from your family or a friend. And they know what to expect and how it all happens. And of course, when you sign up for any of my tools, we just talked about you also get an email from me when, when there's a new episode that's kind of relevant to you right now and other news from the world of simplified cancer and listen I'm, I'm going to keep on asking you about how i'm doing here i mean are you getting what, what you're looking for was there something in particular that that really made sense to you or is there a question that you want to ask or maybe there's there's just something that you you want to get off your chest like please i need to know just reply to any of my emails or send me an email right now. My email is joe at simplifycancer.com. So that's J-O-E at simplifycancer.com. And send me an email whenever you've got anything on your mind. So again, I want to thank you for listening. Till next time. 